Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. They asked Americans, would you support the use of poison gas against the Japanese if it would shorten the war? Nearly half said no. So how is it possible that Americans would have opposed the use of poison gas and yet endorsed the use of an atomic bomb, a far worse, more horrific weapon? On this episode, I talked to Zach Shaw, Professor of National Security Affairs at the National Postgraduate School and a National Security Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Zach is the author of This Is Not Who We Are, America's Struggle Between Vengeance and Virtue. We talk about hard decisions in American foreign policy and whether America is condemned to becoming more cruel in future great power competition. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Zach, thank you very much for joining the show and welcome to Keeping It Civil. Thank you so much for having me. Zach, I'm so glad that you were able to join because you have a really great new book out called This Is Not Who We Are, America's Struggle Between Vengeance and Virtue. And that book addresses the question, what kind of country is America? Why did you want to address that question? Actually, it was related to, although it's a work of history, it's related to contemporary events. In the past few years, I've been noticing how often Americans were saying, this is not who we are, whether it was the removal of children from their parents and locking them in cages at the southern border around the time of the murder of George Floyd, and many other instances, including the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Americans were saying, this is not who we are. And what I think they were really saying is, this is not who we want to be. And I wanted to explore that question and look at a time in history when Americans were also saying this is not who we are, but at a very different time and in a different context during and after World War II when America emerged as a superpower. Yes, and you do study some really interesting examples of sort of critical or key foreign policy decisions during that period, during World War II and right afterwards. Why did you decide that that period of history was so indicative or illustrative of these ethical conundrums in American foreign policy and America's conception of itself. Why did you choose that period? Because the stakes were the highest they could be. The three issues I focus on in the period of the war are the internment of Japanese Americans, the decision to launch nuclear attacks on Japanese civilians, and another decision that many Americans are not aware of, and that was to essentially starve the Germans under U.S. occupation. These were issues that got at the core of American ethics and how they felt about their enemies or perceived enemies. So they revealed a great deal. And they took place at that moment, as I said, when America is really emerging on the world stage as the undisputed power where its rivals are vanquished, its allies are hobbled, and really there's no the closest competitor for the US is Soviet Russia, and they're suffering from the loss of what we now believe to be close to 27 million citizens. So this is a, a moment of extraordinary power for the United States. And I wanted to understand how it used that power and how it saw itself at that moment. So it's almost like when 
America is completely unconstrained in material terms. It's the richest country uh, by far on the planet. Its military resources are completely unparalleled. Then these sort of ethical considerations can be, they're sort of revealed in a way because this layer of uh, material constraint is pulled away. Is that an accurate description? I think that's that's a fair statement, yes. And largely. Why don't you just walk our listeners through very briefly each of these cases and how they turned out? Because my reading of the book is this is a tale of contrasts between sort of cruel and merciful decisions or cruel people who are pushing for cruel foreign policies and others that are pushing for more merciful foreign policies. Why don't you walk us through how each of these different decisions sort of played themselves out? I think one of the most interesting aspects of all three of these is that the majority of Americans and the majority of top officials actually favored mercy over revenge. And yet, a tiny handful of men were able to push their harsher policies through. So I wanted to understand how that happened and why. The other interesting aspect of these three cases is that Americans later came to regret them and feel that these were mistakes. It's a bit murkier in the decision about the atomic bombs, but I actually have a piece coming out in Time magazine. I called it, Do Wars Bring Regrets? And I look back at these three cases in a nutshell because I wanted to understand contemporary conflicts. We have a lot of cases where civilians have been targeted in recent years either through bombing or rape or starvation policies, displaced. And I wanted to see whether they would one day, the people, the combatants involved in these, would one day come to regret them. We don't know yet, of course, but I thought history might give us some insight. So in the case of Japanese Americans, the fascinating part about this is that we've been always been told that Americans were overwhelmingly in favor of this policy. I found the same single survey cited in almost all of the literature. And in fact, you can go on the US Holocaust Museum website and see that same survey listed as evidence of how racist America was in the 1940s. It showed that uh, nearly 60% of Americans favored forcibly removing Japanese Americans from their homes and into concentration camps. And about 90% or more said the same for Japanese nationals living on the West Coast. Those figures seemed very high to me. And so I wanted to dig a little deeper. And it turns out that buried deep in the National Archives are the government's own surveys at the time, which showed that a meager 14% of Americans on the West Coast favored this internment policy. And those surveys were taken in the months just after Pearl Harbor when you would expect that anger toward anyone of Japanese descent would be at its peak. There were other surveys as well, and they showed sometimes as high as 19% and as low as 10% support for this idea, but very far from the much higher, nearly 60% and 90% views that we've always been told. And that's because those surveys came later, after President Roosevelt issues his infamous executive order, labeling Japanese Americans as a threat and a danger. Once that happens and the internment gets underway, then the floodgates open and you get lots of letters and calls for lock them up, you know, we have to get rid of them and so on. So I thought this was interesting because it's not what we thought. And I can see now the 
efforts the government made to shape American opinion and manufacture this anti-Japanese American view. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't racism across the country. Of course, it, there was. It was deep and widespread. We're talking about the degree of that issue. One of the main policy decisions you discuss here is this decision, as you mentioned before, to effectively starve the German population in the aftermath of World War II. And this is another example that really sort of was really striking to me because it went directly against a lot of the inherited wisdom that the United States was very magnanimous towards Western Europe after the war and towards Germany. And we had the Marshall Plan and all this assistance to um, Western Europe. But it seems that at least in your telling before that, there was a much more sort of punitive plan, the so-called Morgenthau plan, that was actually implemented for a while. And I'd, I'd be really interested to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Well, you're absolutely right that we think about the Marshall Plan when we think about the occupation of Germany. And it is an extraordinary and a generous act on the part of the United States to rebuild Western Europe to the tune of billions of taxpayer dollars. Now, what we don't realize is that the Marshall Plan is actually a complete reverse course of the original policy, which was modeled on the Morgenthau Plan. Henry Morgenthau Jr. was the Secretary of the Treasury under Roosevelt, and he had an idea for a much, much harsher occupation in which we would strip Germany of all of its heavy industry, deindustrialize it, and return it to a much simpler agrarian state and the Germans would be left to live off the land. Well, almost everyone in government understood that Morgenthau's plan meant mass starvation. And so it was a battle inside the government to try and push back against Morgenthau's plan. And Roosevelt was not really a decider until very late. He let them battle it out. And Morgenthau had a trump card. He was outnumbered, but he had a close friendship with the president. He could always go in the back door, go and talk with Roosevelt and get him on his side. Finally, they came to a compromise. And the plan that represents US occupation policy for essentially the first two years before the Marshall Plan comes into effect, more than two years, is a slightly watered down version of the Morgenthau Plan. And the crux of it is that US occupation forces are forbidden to help the Germans rebuild their economy. And without that help, it was essentially a recipe for disaster because it became so grim. They needed America, as we found with the Marshall Plan, they needed American aid and money and resources to help rebuild a modern society. They couldn't just live off the land as Marshall expected. So those first two and a half years or more are extremely grim. Now, there are other factors, of course, leading to starvation. It's the destruction of the war, the bombing of all the roads, canals, bridges, and so on, extremely harsh winters. And these things are then exacerbated by the occupation policy. So this too was opposed by a majority of people. And yet Morgenthau and his few supporters were able to push it through. Now, this theme keeps recurring in the book about the difference between large groups of 
people in America, in the case of the um, Japanese Americans, you talk about public opinion, but in the case of the Morgenthau plan, it's more a larger group of policymakers versus, in each case, a much smaller but somehow more influential group that's pushing this more punitive or cruel policy. How does this play itself out with the use of the atomic bomb against Japan at the conclusion of the Second World War? Because you mentioned that that story is a little bit of an outlier in, in your book. In a sense, yes. So again, we have a survey that the literature relies on heavily, a single Gallup poll. And it says that 85% of Americans, ask yourself, how often do 85% of Americans agree on anything? Right, good point. But 85% said that they supported the use of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And that poll was taken six days or so after it was dropped. That, again, struck me as remarkable. The problem with that survey is that no one had any idea what an atomic bomb was because it had never existed before. Not to mention that almost no Americans had any idea about nuclear energy, nuclear physics, or any of that. So when they asked them, when the Gallup poll said, do you support the dropping of an atomic bomb? They had no idea what they were agreeing to. It was a big bomb. That's all they knew. They knew nothing about radiation poisoning, the melting away of people's faces, the way that the flesh was burned off and sloughed off. It's not until a year later when John Hersey writes his article, Hiroshima, in The New Yorker. And it's the first time that Americans really get a glimpse of what the atomic bombs actually did to civilians, to human beings. That article of The New Yorker sells out dramatically. It becomes a sensation. It's picked up and reproduced in newspapers across the country and serialized on radio. It's read over a period of weeks in different parts. It's what everybody's talking about. And it makes the establishment very nervous because it looks like Americans are now going to turn against the use of nuclear weapons, which we're going to need in the Cold War. I should say one other thing about this, and, and that is that that poll showing 85% support for the dropping of the atomic bomb is, stands very much in stark contrast to another Gallup poll taken just a few months earlier. That one I found, I realized I had to compare different polls and see what people were thinking at the time. They asked Americans, would you support the use of poison gas against the Japanese if it would shorten the war? And nearly half said no, they wouldn't. So how is it possible that Americans would have opposed the use of poison gas and yet endorsed the use of an atomic bomb, a far worse, more horrific weapon? Just didn't make sense. There are, however, a couple of more positive stories in the book where US foreign policy takes a more or a less cruel and more merciful turn. And I really thought this story about the food relief to Europe, I believe in the wake of the Second World War, I really thought that story was quite compelling. I'd never heard that story before. So could you tell us a little bit about that? I hadn't either, Henry. I had no idea about the friendship train or right. any of this. This is what takes place before the Marshall Plan kicks in. The winter of 1947 is one of the worst in history. Both 46 and 47 are extremely harsh. And again, because of the vast destruction caused by the war, it's impossible to, to move food from the farms to the cities and transport it as you need to in a 
modern urban industrialized society. So all across Europe, people are starving. And Americans are asked, thanks to two people, two main people leading the, the charge, and that's President Harry Truman and former President Herbert Hoover. Hoover is tasked as the essentially the food ambassador, and he goes around America giving speeches saying, we wouldn't turn starving people away if someone knocked at our door and said, I'm hungry, please help me. Then let's eat less so that we have more food to send overseas for these people who are starving. Even though a lot of the people that we'd be feeding are the very recent former enemies, Germans and Italians. Why should we do this? Some Americans said, and they pushed back. Why should we feed our former enemies? But Hoover and Truman and many others said this was an absolute moral imperative. When people are starving, they need our help, and it doesn't matter who they are. That was their view. One part of this massive humanitarian relief campaign is called the Friendship Train, which was really begun as a publicity stunt, but becomes something much bigger and more serious. The idea was to take a single train and have it go across the country from the West Coast to the East, picking up food donations from average Americans. And they wanted to film it all so they could show it in movie theaters in Europe to say, look, look at how great we are and how good we are, the American people giving and helping. Well, the idea really caught on much more so than the planners had envisioned. Hollywood celebrities became part of it, and Americans came out really in droves. And so they had to keep adding trains and more and more people. And all segments of America, African-Americans, Indian-Americans, Native Americans, you had every kind of subgroup and people desperate really to give whatever they could and show themselves on camera being generous. So there's an when you look at the film of the Friendship Train, which you can find on YouTube, there is a, a performative dimension to it. But I think we shouldn't let that cause us to lose sight of just what an important act this was. And the Europeans who received those food donations, millions of tons, they wrote letters and said, thank you. You saved us. This is really a beautiful act and shows some of the goodness of the American people. And I think there's another underlying aspect we can't overlook. This happens after John Hersey's article and after a lot of the revelations of things that were done during the war that seemed extremely cruel. And it may well be that many Americans wanted a different image, wanted to project a very different side of themselves to the world. So reading all of these cases that you discuss in your book, Zach, a simplistic kind of explanation or interpretation would be simply, you ask, what kind of a country is America? America is a good country full of good people, merciful people who are extremely uneasy with cruel and harsh and violent foreign policies, but they're led by statesmen and stateswomen and bureaucrats that have slightly thicker skin and pursue those policies nonetheless. Is that the upshot of the book or is it more complicated than that? It's different, I'd say. Um, I'm reluctant to categorize a country as good or bad. I don't think that's we can ever do that. That's not reasonable. Countries are full of diverse peoples, organizations, institutions that do good and bad things over time. What we can say is that America during the war, shortly after the war, and I think we can see evidence of it 
as well today, is very often divided between extremes of vengeance and virtue of those who want harshness and those who don't. Think about, for a more contemporary example, the separation of children from their parents at the border and putting them in cages. Overwhelmingly, across the political spectrum, Republicans and Democrats and independents oppose this. But there was still, polls revealed, a core of those Americans who said, this is a good thing and we support this. It should be done in order to deter further illegal immigration. So I think this reminds us that these divisions have always been there. But the hopeful part is that the majority has been, at least since the war and the period I've studied, the majority has been on the side of kindness and mercy. My other sort of first cut explanation of this is that mercy in foreign policy is the luxury of the strong, right? All the harsh decisions that you discuss in the book, or most of them, come during the Second World War when the United States was engaged in kind of very serious, one could say, existential combat against Japan and Germany, Nazi Germany, and the magnanimous decision to send the food train, for example, and there are some other examples in the book, that all comes after the war. And it's easy to be magnanimous in victory. And so another explanation would be, sure, once the United States won the war, then it could afford to be kinder to its former enemies. They pose no threat. Do you agree with that explanation? Or is that also too simple? No, no, I don't. I don't. I'm glad you raised it. Thank you. No, I don't. Because what we see during the war we're inclined to think, well, obviously, in wartime, hatred of the enemy would run high. And it's more natural that you would want to impose harsh, cruel, vengeful policies. But that's not what happened. The vast majority of top officials opposed those policies. They were not in favor of cruel policies. Something very different was happening. The small minority that wanted them figured out how to get better organized and push their policies through. And the ones, the majority that were opposed to it were loosely affiliated, not working in concert, and therefore they lost out. After the war, when America could afford to be magnanimous, you said, we still see, <laughs> even in the case I just described about the friendship train, we still see a segment of the population that doesn't want to give. And in fact, it takes arm twisting and political maneuvering and manipulation on the part of a salesman, a clever soap salesman named Charles Luckman, who rose up through the ranks, began as a door-to-door -door <laughs> soap salesman, and came to lead Pepsodent and then Unilever, one of the larger companies in America. They called him the boy wonder of business. He was on the cover of Time magazine and so on. So Truman puts him in charge of an emergency food relief campaign, of which Hoover is a large part. And Luckman finds that a segment of Americans don't want to be part of the necessary giving. One of his plans, they need grain to send overseas. And one way to get that grain is to shut down the distilleries in America to produce no more alcohol for a period of time. And the period of time that's in winter, it's around this time. So they want to shut it down from Thanksgiving to Christmas. That's when the companies who own the distilleries are going to make the most money. And so they're all opposed to it. But Luckman brings them all into Washington for a, a meeting. And he tells them, you've got to go along with this. Women and children are starving to death. Please, we need you. 
and they're completely unmoved. <laughs> and and it looks like they're going to have to take a vote. And it's clear that Luckman's going to lose until one person in the room, one of the CEOs, Armand Hammer, slips Charles Luckman a note. And the note says, make them vote by name. And Luckman immediately realizes what that would do. Because these men understood public relations. And if they were exposed as voting against a humanitarian campaign, they would be seen as greedy plutocrats, and it could harm their bottom line, and they'd be vilified when so many average Americans were sacrificing by eating less bread and giving up their own food so that they could say, feed their former enemies overseas. He does make them vote by name. And of course, he wins, and that allows the distilleries to shut down and pushes them over the limit to reach the grain quota and have that ability to send more food overseas. Yes, and one of the great things about the book is how much uh, agency there is in these decisions. These very big foreign policy decisions come down to bureaucratic politics, uh, as you said, personal relationships with the president and other influential people, and you realize how much contingency there really is, even in the biggest foreign policy decisions like how to deal with Germany after the war. And that's one of the things I like the most about the book is those stories are just so compelling. But let me push you a little further on this, because you said that the US withdrawal from Iraq, the treatment of asylum seekers at the border, sorry, withdrawal from Afghanistan, I meant to say, all these things made you deeply uh, concerned about the character of American foreign policy, America's self-conception of its role in the world. These engagements overseas and some of the more recent foreign policy decisions that could be interpreted as being more harsh have come after 9-11, after this horrific terrorist attack on the United States. They've come in an era of increasing great power competition with China and now also with Russia. Do you think that America is condemned to be become more cruel in its foreign policy, almost um compelled to become more cruel in its foreign policy as these threats from abroad proliferate and become more acute? No, I don't. Not at all. I think we're still in the same type of situation, although much has changed since the 1940s. We're a very different country than we were then, but we still see that divide. We still see a majority. In fact, if you ask people to look at what's happening Israel and Gaza right now, I think you'll find that most Americans are horrified by the atrocities committed by Hamas, and they're deeply moved by the suffering of Palestinians in Gaza. I think it's uh, still a minority that want harshness in foreign policy. And I think the answer to your question is, it will depend on who's leading the country and whether they can overcome the majority that wants more merciful, more peaceful policies in the world. So that, I think, is one of the lessons of the book. Personal relationships, individuals, and their nature made a huge difference. We can talk about macro forces, structural forces, and theories of international relations, but when you really dig into the details of how policies are made, so much of it has to do with the individual leaders themselves and the people around them, and who's able to manipulate the policy process. So I think that will determine more than anything else what our policies are like in the future. 
Did this writing this book make you think a lot about the ethics of other f- countries' foreign policy decisions and how they come about? Do you think that the norms and uh, political culture in the United States are such that the general trajectory of foreign policy decision-making is fundamentally different to other countries for that reason? Or do you think that many countries, it's almost a kind of a human trait to generally favor these more merciful policies in foreign policy and for them to only be overcome relatively rarely by smaller groups? I would like to believe that, but it's not a comparative history. So I can't say with certainty. Of course, we can look at foreign policies of other countries and, and say, would Russia be pursuing the same policy toward Ukraine if a different group of leaders were were in power? I would have to think so. That leads me to think that it has very much to do with the individuals in power. Yes, there are there are forces that can make Russia as a nation feel threatened by the expansion of NATO, for example. But the response to that sense of threat need not necessarily be naked aggression and attack on Ukraine if you had different people making those decisions. I take you to have a relatively positive spin on the future of international relations. You know, you, there's a lot of negativity out there these days with the rise of China, with the invasion of Ukraine by a newly isolated and sort of uh, bellicist Russia. Uh, there's a lot of negativity out there about the future of international relations, international security, but your book is really pushing back on that. I take it as a more optimistic take. Is that accurate? Yes, but I think more precisely, it's that we always have this tension between a majority that wants a more peaceful, stable, kinder, (laughs) to use George H.W. Bush's term, a kinder, gentler America, and a minority that wants to be harsher and crueler. That tension won't go away. The question is, who will be able to win out in different policy debates? And that I can't predict. That will depend a lot on the American voter. Right. And I think that's a great place to conclude the interview, Zach. I would ask you one final question, which is a question that we ask of all of our guests, which is if you had to recommend one book on civil disagreement and debate, perhaps with, uh, with an emphasis on US foreign policy or international relations to our audience, what would that be? If I could slightly modify the question, I could recommend a book that deals with this period And one of the finest hours of American foreign policy, when Americans sacrificed to do something truly noble, it's a book called The Candy Bombers by Andre Cherney. It came out some years ago, and it tells the story, I think it's the best telling, of the Berlin airlift and what Americans and Brits, Canadians, New Zealanders, Australians, South Africans, and their air forces, how they collaborated to help deliver life-saving food and medicine and coal for heat to a blockaded West Berlin. It is a moving, touching story that really will give you hope and faith in humanity. So I would recommend The Candy Bombers by Andre Cherney. That's a great recommendation. The airlift into Berlin is not as well known a story as it should be, but truly remarkable events. Thank you very much, uh, Zach, for being on the show. And thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much, Henry. I really enjoyed it.